Almighty God, we ask that by your Spirit you would be present with us now, planting this, your word, deep in our hearts, that it might grow and flourish and bear a harvest to your glory. Lord, we pray as we come to your word that you might show us your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might leave this place rejoicing in him and go out to live our lives for his glory and his fame. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please do take a seat. If you were with us in our morning services last week, uh, then you'll know that we looked together at Psalm 103. And we saw there the psalmist not just telling us, but showing us why the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the only true and living God, why he is worthy of all our thanks and praise. And whilst our psalm today, 104, may well have been written by a different human author, there is no question that the purpose is the same. To stir the psalmist, to stir our hearts, our souls to praise. Only this time, uh, the subject matter is not the psalmist's own personal relationship with the living God, nor the history of, of God's saving work in the lives of his people. No, this time, the psalmist wants to call us to praise by showing us, in all its vast array, the magnificent creation of our Creator God. Where Psalm 103 might be described as, as personal and relational, Psalm 104 is panoramic and creational. In these verses, the the psalmist invites us to survey all that the Lord has made, to consider his works, to ponder his provision, to take the time to stop and smell the roses and to stir ourselves to praise. Verse 1. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. Back in the 14th century BC, the Egyptian king Amenhotep IV decided he'd ditch the uh, traditional pantheon of Egyptian gods and worship instead just the one god, the sun god, Aten. The pharaoh changed his name to Arkan Aten and wrote a song called The Great Hymn to the Aten, in which he praised the sun for making everything and supplying food for all the creatures on earth. 
Now, some have suggested that that, that hymn and, and our psalm today are so similar that, that the psalmist must have read Akhenaten's words and copied them. But friends, that totally misses the massive, glaring, obvious, and crucial difference between the two works. You see, Akhenaten looked at the world and saw how important the sun was for sustaining life, and so he worshipped the sun. Our psalmist sees the world and how it's sustained, and he worships the one who made the sun. Fundamentally, the God of the Bible is distinct from his creation. He's not a part of it in contrast to so many ancient religions, and in contrast to Buddhism and all the New Age philosophies we see today, this psalm is not a call to worship the creation we see around us. It is a call instead to wonder at creation and worship its creator. And yet neither is that creator a distant and far-off God. No, the God of the Bible is personal, present, and involved. He's creator, yes, but also covenant maker. The one who relates to his creation, who relates to us. That's why the psalmist begins with his covenant name. Praise Yahweh, my soul. Yahweh, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. For the Christian, our God is is over and above, behind and beneath all of his creation, sustaining and upholding it, present and active within it. Like Akhenaten, we, we look at the sun and we marvel But we marvel not at the sun itself, but rather at the one who imagined the sun and gives source to its light. And as we read on, we we hear of this personal, present creator, God, ordering and, and structuring his creation so that it might fulfill his purposes. I'll read now from verse 5. And as I do, just remember that for an ancient Israelite like our psalmist, the sea, the waters, were always a symbol of chaos and disorder, randomness and, and unpredictability. And with that in mind, listen to what this very great God does to the waters. Verse 5. He set the earth on its foundations, It can never be moved. You covered it with a watery depth as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. They flowed over the mountains and went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again. Will they cover the earth? I think we're supposed to to hear and to recognize the echoes of the biblical account of creation. There in in Genesis chapter 1, the waters covered a formless and empty void. 
until the creator gave it shape, gave it order, filled it with good things. Indeed, this whole psalm finds its structure in that Genesis account. Light, separating waters, vegetation, the sun and moon, sea creatures, land creatures, and finally, humanity. The psalmist is is very deliberately riffing on that ancient story. And yet we must see also that he develops that thinking here. So that his readers, so that we today might see how the deep truths of creation find expression and and fulfillment in our experience of life in this world. You see, that that great act of creation wasn't just a party trick performed for a a one-off moment of amazement. No, all that ordering, all that forming, all that filling, all that structuring of reality, it had a purpose, a goal, an ongoing intention. The sovereign Lord overcomes that chaos. He, He brings order and regularity so that he might go about fulfilling his purposes on this earth. That great act of creation was not the end of God's involvement in this world. He has designs and plans, purposes and intention for his creation. Woven into the the very fabric of this universe is the idea that creation would grow and develop, that it would sustain and, and encourage progress. It was never intended to be static. Even back in the the Genesis account, there's an intriguing little detail. I wonder if you've ever spotted it before. Just as the author is is describing the location of the Garden of Eden, the place from which God intends his chosen people to go out and, and fill and subdue the whole earth. Back there, we read these words in Genesis 2, verse 10. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. Gold. An aromatic resin. Onyx. Friends, those things need mining and processing and refining. Do you see? From the very beginning, this magnificent creation had purpose. It was ripe for development, ready to be put to use. And that's what we see in the rest of our psalm today. Those those waters that the Lord had had ordered and corralled into place, well, they had purpose. Verse 10, he, he makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. 
He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. The Lord didn't need to create. He didn't have to, to bring any of this into being. And yet he chose to, at least in part, so that creation might enjoy having been created. The beasts of the field, the wild donkeys, the birds of the sky, later the, the beasts of the forest and the lions, even the creatures of the deep sea, even the great leviathan, probably some sort of whale or squid or great fish, even they were formed to frolic in the waters. Verse 27, all creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. Part of the purpose of this creation is to sustain itself, to promote life and, and flourishing, growth and abundance, that the seas might teem with living things, that the land might blossom and bud and flourish and fruit. You can almost sense the, the delight of our God, the master craftsman, seeing his creation thrive, seeing the boundaries that he has put in place, the laws that he has set come to fruition as each tree and plant, bird and animal finds its own niche within this wonderfully complex and an intricate design. But I wonder if you also noticed humanity's part in this. The part that, that makes human beings distinct and different from everything else in creation. Where the donkeys and, and lions and birds and fish all receive their food at the proper time, for humanity... There's a subtle twist. Listen again to verse 14. The Lord makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate. The psalmist goes on. He, he makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. Wine, oil, bread. Uh, friends, they don't just spring up from the ground. They require work and input, labor. Sure, grapes, if you leave them long enough, will ferment. But wine to gladden human hearts? Well, that takes some effort. Oil re requires crushing and, and pressing, separating and siphoning. It's not easy. And bread, well, 
Well, just think about all the stages of, of development, of technology required for bread. To recognize and, and cultivate cereal grains, to harvest them at the right time, to remove the husks, to, to grind the grain, grind it fine enough to make flour. And then to mix the flour with, with the right amount of water and some of that oil that you've just had to make. To make a dough. To knead that dough. And then, oh, oh this would have been a massive development. To cook it. To bake it. Friends, do you see all of that? Well, it was there when God first made the world but only as a possibility, only as potential. Just like the gold and onyx and aromatic resin of Genesis 2, the Lord provided the raw materials. But he intended humanity, he intended us to put it to work, to develop and refine, to process and combine From the very beginning, the Lord's intention was that we should inhabit this creation and enhance this creation. It is part and parcel of of our position as his vice regents here that we use the intellect and the skill that he has given us to investigate and innovate, to discover and develop. God's creation is magnificent by itself, but it finds special significance when it is combined with the faculties he has given us. Verse 19, he made the moon. Why? Have you ever asked that? Why the moon? To mark the seasons. No other creature makes calendars. Only us. Our God has given humanity this creation that we might put it to use and enjoy it. And so, friends, we have no need as as Christian believers to be afraid of or against science and technology. Our God makes science possible. He ordered this universe in in such a way that we may rightly assume that that the same experiment conducted under the same conditions will yield the same results. In Alaska or, or Australia, in Zurich or Zimbabwe. And he made us. He made humankind with the ability to discern that order, to recognize patterns and principles, to harness them for good, to put them to work. Timothy Keller, in commenting on this psalm, put it like this. He said, a personal creator has filled the world with the principles of physics, mathematics, chemistry, biology, and the like. Because of this, we have aerodynamics making flight possible, electricity, medicine, all harnessing a host of givens and and limitations embedded in creation that have made civilization possible. 
I think this psalm gives us a framework for understanding how we might observe both the raw, undeveloped creation around us and the refined and processed results of our interaction with that creation and how we might find both as a prompt to our hearts to praise our God. A few weeks ago, I went walking in the Lake District with friends. Now there is a place where you can see the Lord's gushing waters at work. Here we are in the early part of our walk. Just about see us there, I think. But friends, then the clouds lifted and parted and the sun came out. And this is what we saw. did take a while. There it is. And how can any one of us stand on that mountain with that view, seeing the beauty of God's creation and not join our psalmist in giving glory to the one who brought the whole thing into existence? It is magnificent. And yet, you know, in its own way, is not this also magnificent? I found this circuit board upstairs in the church office. Uh, You'll have to ask Spencer what it's doing there and what he intends to do with it next. Uh, But just consider what we see here. In each of these tiny resistors and capacitors, diodes and transistors, Here is thousands of years of collective human endeavor and ingenuity. Each generation building upon the work of those who came before. Cultivating and and utilizing the astonishing properties of the creation that God has given us. And all the while, doing the very thing that God created us to do. That we might reflect his creative genius in our own. Cast in his image, so we now bring light to darkness. Irrigation to parched land. Food from the soil. Order from the chaos. There's a wonderful little hint at that towards the end of our psalm, verse 25. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you form to frolic there. Did you spot it? Remember that earlier the waters had had been a picture of, of chaos and calamity. Something that was to be feared. Something only God could tame. And yet now look. On this still vast and spacious sea. Teeming with life with the great Leviathan itself. What do we see? 
We see ships. Ships going to and fro. Even the chaotic waters have been tamed by humankind. Subdued and ordered. As we image our creator in taking on the role he so graciously intended for us. In this, his creation. So let me encourage you this morning, if you are a scientist, or if you work in in engineering, or medicine, or computing, if you're a gardener, or a baker, or a mechanic, or even if you just like Lego, friends, let those moments stir you to praise just as much as the natural world. Whether we view it from the mountaintops or down the microscope, we must see that everything good in our lives finds its source and its origin in our generous and gracious creator God. The one who gave us all that we have. The one who gave us the great privilege of of imaging him as we enjoy his creation and as we put it to work. Oh, praise the Lord, my soul. But surely that is not all that must be said. No honest assessment of the world we see around us, of our relationship to it, could see only cause for rejoicing and praise. And so too our psalmist cannot close his song without a dose of sober reality. Verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. If Genesis 2 gave us a beautiful picture of the potential of creation, well, the very next chapter brings home the crushing reality of our slide to destruction. From the moment our first parents first turned to grasp power for themselves, we have become adept at at taking what God has given us and using it to usurp him, to claim our our own superiority, to claim our own glory. No longer do we seek simply to image God, but rather we seek to be God. To claim sovereignty and, and ownership over that which we were only ever intended to steward as tenants. Our role in in creation has been fatally marred. 
We no longer just use, but we abuse. We don't just explore, we exploit. And as the psalmist reminds us, if the glory of the Lord is to endure forever, if he is to rejoice in his works, well then sinners must vanish from the earth and the wicked must be no more. And therein lies our fundamental problem. As sinful creatures before our holy creator, we cannot hope to stand. For all our ingenuity, all our progress, we simply cannot deal with sin and its effects. Don't we see that in every area of our lives? So often the progress and technology that ought to bring us enjoyment or or relief from suffering is turned instead to cause harm and distress to subjugate and and abuse, to exploit and demean. And for all our skill and intellect, a few minutes of the news reports tonight will remind us painfully that we've not really subdued this earth. We've not really managed to bring order. We can't control its trembling We can't predict when the mountains will smoke. Friends, we are still but creatures. But even there, even there, our gracious creator provides. The very one who is clothed in splendor and majesty Step down into this, his creation. A new poverty and rejection. The one who who wraps himself in light was wrapped in a simple blanket as he was laid in a feeding trough. The one who, who stretched out the heavens stretched out his arms on a Roman cross. In Jesus Christ, God himself, the creator of all, redeemed his creation. Where you and and I fail each and every day to live up to the role God has given us, Jesus Christ perfectly imaged his father. Where we see in our power an opportunity for self-advancement and personal gain, Jesus Christ used his power to overcome the effects of our sin, to heal the damage we have wrought in this, his world. Where our Sin and wickedness means that we deserve only to die and return to the dust from which we came. Jesus Christ, by his life, death and resurrection, has made a way that we might be caught up in the joy of the triune God 
delighting forever in all that he is and in all that he has made. And so, friends, this morning, let us rejoice and be glad in all that the Lord has given us in this life to enjoy and explore, to delight in and develop. But friends, most of all, let us rejoice and be glad in the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we may now look forward to an eternity of praising God in the new heavens and the new earth, where we will truly and forever be satisfied with good things. Let's pray. Almighty God, creator of all, we thank you for your good gifts to us. We thank you for the beauty of creation. We thank you for the potential of creation. And we thank you for making us such that we might begin to realize that potential. that we might take what you have given us and cultivate it, develop it. We thank you, Lord, for the, the blessing that it is to live in the time that we do, where humanity has had thousands of years to put to work the raw materials that you have given us. But we recognize too, Lord, so often we misuse that power, that strength that you have given. Lord, we pray in all the complexities of modern life that you would help us to discern what it looks like to be good and responsible stewards of what you have given us, to enjoy the things that you have blessed us with. And yet not to worship them, but instead to worship you, the one who gave them to us. And so, Father, we thank you most of all this morning for your son, Jesus Christ. Through whom we Creatures of the dust might come with confidence before you, the creator wrapped in light. And through whom we might know you as loving father and gracious savior. Oh Lord, teach us to rejoice in every area of our lives, prompt our souls to praise, to praise you, our Lord, our God, our Creator, our King. Amen.